Letter 92, Part 2 of Letters of John Keats to His Family and Friends Edited by Sidney Colvin This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo To George and Georgiana Keats March 13, Saturday I have written to Fanny this morning and received a note from Haslam. I was to have dined with him tomorrow. He gives me a bad account of his father, who has not been in town for five weeks, and is not well enough for company. Haslam is well, and from the prosperous state of some love affair, he does not mind the double tides he has to work. I have been a walk past West End, and was going to call it Mr. Monkhouse's, but I did not, not being in the humor. I know not why poetry and I have been so distant lately. I must make some advances soon, or she will cut me entirely. Hazlitt has this fine passage in his letter. Gifford, in his review of Hazlitt's characters of Shakespeare's plays, attacks the Coriolanus critique. He says that Hazlitt has slandered Shakespeare in saying that he had a leaning to the arbitrary side of the question. Hazlitt thus defends himself. My words are, Coriolanus is a storehouse of political commonplaces. The arguments for and against aristocracy and democracy, on the privileges of the few and the claims of the many, on liberty and slavery, power and the abuse of it, peace and war, are here very ably handled, with the spirit of a poet and the acuteness of a philosopher. Shakespeare himself seems to have had a leaning to the arbitrary side of the question. Perhaps, from some feeling of contempt for his own origin, and to have spared no occasion of baiting the rabble. What he says of them is very true. What he says of their betters is also very true, though he dwells less upon it. I then proceed to account for this by showing how it is that the cause of the people is but little calculated for a subject for poetry, or that the language of poetry naturally falls in with the language of power. I affirm, sir, that poetry, that the imagination, generally speaking, delights in power and strong excitement, as well as in truth, in good, in right, whereas pure reason and the moral sense approve only of the true and good. I proceed to show that this general love or tendency to immediate excitement or theatrical effect, no matter how produced, gives a bias to the imagination, often consistent with the greatest good, that in poetry, it triumphs over principle, and bribes the passions to make a sacrifice of common humanity. You say that it does not, that there is no such original sin in poetry, that it makes no such sacrifice or unworthy compromise between poetical effect and the still small voice of reason. And how do you prove that there is no such principle, giving a bias to the imagination and a false coloring to poetry? Why? by asking in reply to the instances where this principle operates, and where no other can with much modesty and simplicity. But are these the only topics that afford delight in poetry, etc.? No, but these objects do afford delight in poetry, and they afford it in proportion to their strong and often tragical effect, and not in proportion to the good produced, or their desirableness in a moral point of view. Do we read with more pleasure of the ravages of a beast of prey than of the shepherd's pipe upon the mountain? No. 
but we do read with pleasure of the ravages of a beast of prey and we do so on the principle i have stated namely from the sense of power abstracted from the sense of good and it is the same principle that makes us read with admiration and reconciles us in effect to the triumphant progress of the conquerors and mighty hunters of mankind who come to stop the shepherd's pipe upon the mountains and sweep away his listening flock do you mean to deny that there is anything imposing to the imagination in power in grandeur in outward show in the accumulation of individual wealth and luxury at the expense of equal justice and the common weal do you deny that there is anything in the pride pomp and circumstance of glorious war that makes ambition virtue in the eyes of admiring multitudes is this a new theory of the pleasures of the imagination which says that the pleasures of the imagination do not take rise solely in the calculation of the understanding is it a paradox of my creating that one murder makes a villain millions a hero or is it not true that here as in other cases the enormity of the evil overpowers and makes a convert of the imagination by its very magnitude you contradict my reasoning because you know nothing of the question and you think that no one has a right to understand what you do not my offence against purity in the passage alluded to which contains the concentrated venom of my malignity is that i have admitted that there are tyrants and slaves abroad in the world and you would hush the matter up and pretend that there is no such thing in order that there may be nothing else further i have explained the cause the subtle sophistry of the human mind that tolerates and pampers the evil in order to guard against its approaches you would conceal the cause in order to prevent the cure and to leave the proud flesh about the heart to harden and ossify into one impenetrable mass of selfishness and hypocrisy that we may not sympathize in the distresses of suffering virtue in any case in which they come in competition with the fictitious wants and imputed weaknesses of the great you ask are we gratified by the cruelties of domitian or nero no not we they were too petty and cowardly to strike the imagination at a distance but the roman senate tolerated them addressed their perpetrators exalted them into gods the fathers of the people they had pimps and scribblers of all sorts in their pay their senecas etc till a turbulent rabble thinking there were no injuries to society greater than the endurance of unlimited and wanton oppression put an end to the farce and abated the sin as well as they could had you and i lived in those times we should have been what we are now i a sour malcontent and you a sweet courtier the manner in which this is managed the force and innate power with which it yeasts and works up itself the feeling for the costume of society is in a style of genius he hath a demon as he himself says of lord byron we are to have a party this evening the davenports from church row i don't think you know anything of them they have paid me a good deal of attention i like davenport himself the names of the rest are miss barnes miss winter were the children later 
March 17 or 18. On Monday we had to dinner Severin and Cawthorn, the bookseller, and print Virtuoso. In the evening Severin went home to paint, and we other three went to the play, to see Scheele's new tragedy, Diclepid Evande. In the morning Severin and I took a turn around the museum. There is a sphinx there of a giant size, and most voluptuous Egyptian expression. I have not seen it before. The play was bad even in comparison with 1818, the Augustan age of the drama. Come on say, as Voltaire says, the whole was made up of a virtuous young woman, an indignant brother, a suspecting lover, a libertine prince, a gratuitous villain, a street to Naples, a cypress grove, lilies and roses, virtue and vice, a bloody sword, a spangled jacket, one Lady Olivia, one Miss O'Neill alias Ivande, alias Bellomera, alias, alias, yea, and I say unto you a greater than Elias. There was Abbott, and talking of Abbott, his name puts me in mind of a spelling-book lesson, descriptive of the whole dramatis personae. Abbott, abbess, actor, actress. The play is a fine amusement, as a friend of mine once said to me. Do what you will, says he. Poor gentleman who wants a guinea, cannot spend his two shillings better than at the playhouse. The pantomime was excellent. I had seen it before, and I enjoyed it again. Your mother and I had some talk about Miss H. Says I, will Henry have that Miss? A lath with a bodice, she who has been fine-drawn, fit for nothing but to cut up into cribbage pins, to the tune of 15.2. One who is all muslin, all feather and bone, once in travelling, she was made use of as a linchpin. I hope we will not have her, though it is no uncommon thing to be smitten with a staff, though she might be very useful as his walking-stick, his fishing-rod, his toothpick, his hat-stick. She runs so much in his head. Let him turn farmer. She would cut into hurdles. Let him write poetry. She would be his turnstile. Her gown is like a flag on a pole. She would do for him if he turned Freemason. I hope she'll prove a flag of truce, when she sits languishing, with her one foot on a stool and one elbow on the table, and her head inclined. She looks like the sign of the crooked billet, or the frontispiece to Cinderella, or a tea-paper woodcut of Mother Shipton at her studies. She is a make-believe. She is bona fide, a thin young woman. But this is mere talk of a fellow-creature. Yet, party, I would not that Henry have her. Non volo ut imposida, nam, for it would be a bam, for it would be a sham. Don't think I am writing a petition to the governors of St. Luke. No, that would be in another style. May it please your worships, for as much as the undersigned has committed, transferred, given up, made over, consigned, and aberrated himself, to the art and mystery of poetry, for as much as he hath cut, rebuffed, affronted, huffed, and shirked, and taken stint at all other employments, arts, mysteries, and occupations, honest, middling, and dishonest, for as much as he hath at sundry times and in diverse places told truth unto the men of this generation, and eke to the women, moreover, for as much as he hath kept a pair of boots that did not fit, and doth not admire Scheele's play, Lee Hunt, 
Tom Moore, Bob Southey, and Mr. Rogers, and does admire William Hazlitt. Moreover, for his more as he liketh half of Wordsworth and none of Crabb. Moreover, ist for his most as he hath written this page of penmanship, he prayeth your worships to give him a lodging, witnessed by Road Abbey and Company, cum Fabrilis et Consanguinis, signed Count de Cocony. The nothing of the day is a machine called the Velocipede. It is a wheel carriage to ride cock horse upon, sitting astride and pushing it along with the toes, a rudder wheel in hand. They will go seven miles an hour. A handsome gelding will come to eight guineas. However, they will soon be cheaper, unless the army takes to them. I look back upon the last month. I find nothing to write about. Indeed, I do not recollect anything particular in it. It's all alike. We keep on breathing. The only amusement is a little scandal, of however fine a shape. A laugh at a pun. And then, after all, we wonder how we could enjoy the scandal or laugh at the pun. I have been at different times, turning it in my head whether I should go to Edinburgh and study for a physician. I am afraid I should not take kindly to it. I am sure I could not take fees, and yet I should like to do so. It's not worse than writing poems and hanging them up to be fly-blown on their review shambles. Everybody is in his own mess. Here is the parson at Hampstead, quarrelling with all the world. He is in the wrong by the same token. When the black cloth was put up in the church for the queen's mourning, he asked the workmen to hang it to the wrong side outwards, that it might be better when taken down. It being his perquisite, parsons will always keep up their character. But, as it is said, there are some animals in the ancients new which we do not. Let us hope our posterity will miss the black badger with tri-cornered hat. Who knows, but some reviewer or Buffin or Pliny may put an account of the parson in the appendix. No one will then believe it any more than we believe in the phoenix. I think we may class the lawyer in the same natural history of monsters. A green bag will hold as much as a lawn sleeve. The only difference is that one is fustian and the other flimsy. I am not unwilling to read church history at present, and have Milner's in my eye. His is reckoned a very good one. 18th September, 1819 In looking over some of my papers, I found the above specimen of my carelessness. It is a sheet you ought to have had long ago. My letter must have appeared very unconnected, but as I number the sheets, you must have discovered how the mistake happened. How many things have happened since I wrote it? How have I acted contrary to my resolves? The interval between writing this sheet and the day I put this supplement to it has been completely filled with generous and most friendly actions of Brown towards me. How frequently I forget to speak of things which I think of and feel most. Tis very singular. The idea about Buffon above has been taken up by Hunt in the Examiner, in some papers which he calls a preternatural history. Friday, 19th March. This morning I've been reading the false one. Shameful to say, I was in bed at ten. I mean this morning. The Blackwood reviewers have committed themselves in a scandalous heresy. They have been putting up Hogg, the Ettrick Shepherd, against Burns. The senseless villains. The Scotch cannot manage themselves at all. 
they want imagination and that is why they are so fond of hog who is little of it this morning i am in sort of a temper indolent and supremely careless i long after a stanza or two of thompson's castle of indolence my passions are all asleep from my having slumbered till nearly eleven and weakened the animal fibre all over me to a delightful sensation about three degrees on this side of faintness if i had teeth of pearl and the breath of lilies i should call it languor but as i am i must call it laziness in this state of effemacy the fibres of the brain are relaxed in common with the rest of the body and to such a happy degree that pleasure has no show of enticement and pain no unbearable power neither poetry nor ambition nor love have any alertness of countenance as they pass by me they seem rather like figures on a greek vase a man and two women whom no one but myself could distinguish in their disguisement this is the only happiness and is a rare instance of the advantage of the body overpowering the mind i have this moment received a note from haslam in which he expects the death of his father who has been for some time in a state of insensibility his mother bears up he says very well i shall go to town to-morrow to see him this is the world thus we cannot expect to give way many hours to pleasure circumstances are like clouds continually gathering and bursting while we are laughing the seed of some trouble is put into the wide arable land of events while we are laughing it sprouts it grows and suddenly bears a poison fruit which we must pluck even so we have leisure to reason on the misfortunes of our friends our own touch us too nearly for words very few men have ever arrived at a complete disinterestedness of mind very few have been influenced by a pure desire of the benefit of others in the greater part of the benefactors to humanity some meretricious motive has sullied their greatness some melodramatic scenery has fascinated them from the manner in which i feel hoslem's misfortune i perceive how far i am from any humble standard of disinterestedness yet this feeling ought to be carried to its highest pitch as there is no fear of it ever injuring society which it would do i fear pushed to an extremity for in wild nature the hawk would lose his breakfast of robins and the robin his of worms the lion must starve as well as the swallow the greater part of men make their way with the same instinctiveness the same unwandering eye from their purposes the same animal eagerness as the hawk the hawk wants a mate so does the man look at them both they set about it and procure one in the same manner they want both a nest and they both set about one in the same manner they get their food in the same manner the noble animal man for his amusement smokes his pipe the hawk balances about the clouds that is the only difference of their leisures this it is that makes the amusement a life to a speculative mind i go among the fields and catch a glimpse of a stoat or a field mouse peeping out of the withered grass the creature hath a purpose and its eyes are bright with it i go amongst the buildings of a city and i see a man hurrying along to what the creature has a purpose and his eyes are bright with it but then as wordsworth says we have all one human heart 
There is an electric fire in human nature tending to purify, so that among these human creatures there is a continually some birth of new heroism. The pity is that we must wonder at it, as we should at finding a pearl in rubbish. I have no doubt that thousands of people never heard of have had hearts completely disinterested. I can remember but two, Socrates and Jesus. Their histories evince it. What I heard a little time ago, Taylor observed with respect to Socrates, may be said of Jesus, that he was so great a man that though he transmitted no writing of his own to posterity, we have his mind and his sayings and his greatness handed to us by others. It is to be lamented that the history of the latter was written and revised by men interested in the pious frauds of religion. Yet through all this I see his splendor. Even here, though I myself am pursuing the same instinctive course as the various human animal you can think of, I am, however young, writing at random, straining of particles of light in the midst of a great darkness, without knowing the bearing of any one assertion, of any one opinion. Yet may I not in this be free from sin? May there not be superior beings amused with any graceful, though instinctive, attitude my mind may fall into, as I am entertained with the alertness of a stoat or the anxiety of a deer? Though a quarrel in the streets is a thing to be hated, the energies displayed in it are fine. The commonest man shows a grace in his quarrel. By a superior being, our reasonings may take the same tone, though erroneous they may be fine. This is the very thing in which consists poetry, and if so, it is not so fine a thing as philosophy, for the same reason that an eagle is not so fine a thing as the truth. Give me this credit. Do you not think I strive to know myself? Give me this credit, and you will not think that on my own account I repeat Milton's lines. How charming is divine philosophy, not harsh and crabbed, as dull fools suppose, but musical, as is Apollo's lute. No, not for myself, feeling grateful as I do to have got into a state of mind to relish them properly. Nothing ever becomes real till it is experienced. Even a proverb is no proverb to you till your life has illustrated it. I am ever afraid that your anxiety for me will lead you to fear for the violence of my temperament continually smothered down. For that reason, I did not intend to have sent you the following sonnet. But look over the two last pages and ask yourself whether I have not that in me which will bear the buffets of the world. It will be the best comment on my sonnet. It will show you that it was written with no agony but that of ignorance, with no thirst of anything but knowledge, when pushed to the point through the first steps to it or through my human passions. They went away, and I wrote with my mind, and perhaps, I must confess, a little bit of my heart. Why did I laugh tonight? No voice will tell. No god, no demon of severe response deigns to reply from heaven or from hell. Then to my human heart I turn at once. Heart, thou and I are here sad and alone. Say, wherefore did I laugh, O mortal pain? O darkness, darkness, ever must I moan, to question heaven and hell, and heart in vain. Why did I laugh? I know this being's lease, 
my fancy to it is utmost blisses spreads yet could i in this very midnight cease and the world's gaudy ensign see in shreds verse fame and beauty are intense indeed but death intenser death is life's high mead i went to bed and enjoyed an uninterrupted sleep sane i went to bed and sane i arose end of letter ninety two part two